Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. The words of Jesus from John chapter 15, verse 13. Tomorrow is a day that we set aside to honor men and women who have done that very thing, laid their lives down in service to their country. Veterans Day. And before you accuse me of not knowing the difference between Memorial Day and Veterans Day, I know the difference. I know that Memorial Day is when we honor those who have given uh, their lives, paid the ultimate price uh, for what we, what we get to enjoy in this country. But I guess I think that you know Veterans Day, even though somebody hasn't necessarily laid their actual life down in terms of they haven't paid the ultimate price, they haven't died for their country, it doesn't mean that they haven't actually laid their lives down. And that's really what they do. They've missed holidays. They've missed birthdays. They've, some of them have missed the birth of their own children. Veterans have surrendered their safety, their security, everything comfortable and familiar to them. They gave that up for a time. And it was for our freedom. This past week, I was thinking about that as we exercised one of our freedoms that make this nation unique and great. We had the chance to vote. The freedom to vote or, or to choose not to. And what a difference if you consider this nation's history and, and what we came from, what we escaped from, what a difference in the way things used to be, and what a difference in the way things continue to be in other countries, in other nations. But it also brings up a question when we consider our political system in this country, can one person really make a difference? Can one person, one vote, really make that much of a difference? The other side of that coin is this. Should one person be able to make all the difference? There's a story that circulates around about this nation's first president, George Washington, and I guess there's some doubt about the historical accuracy, but it's a popular story. Mr. Washington was approached, apparently, about becoming this nation's first king, there's an old saying that says that absolute power corrupts absolutely, and I think that George Washington probably believed that. And the story goes that he turned that down because he didn't want to become, he didn't want this nation to become the same thing that they were escaping from. As a matter of fact, there was a popular motto during the Revolutionary War, and it was this, that there's no king but Jesus. It's a good motto. As we continue with this series that we're in called The Story, for those of you that are new or have just joined us the last couple weeks, uh, we're talking about the entire Bible. The, the Bible, we have this book. I wish I had one with me. Somebody hold it up so everybody knows what I'm talking about. Who's got the story with them? There we go. There's a copy of it. So we're going through this book, and it's called The Story. The story is basically the Bible in novel form. And I want to let you know, we, ha we used to have some out uh, when we first started this series a few months back. Uh, we had them out for people to take, and since they've all, you know, been taken, and so I need to order some more. So we will have those available for you, hopefully next week. And if you don't have a copy of the story, pick one of those up. We're covering one chapter a week. And so what we're doing is going through the story. Basically, it doesn't talk about every single thing in the Bible, but it gives us an overview of the narrative, the big picture of the Bible. And of course, a big storyline in the story is God's people, the Israelites. And if only they had a motto similar to that one that I mentioned earlier, no king but God. Now, there was a time in Israel's history where they kind of had that unofficial motto, I guess. They didn't have a king in their country except for God. 
And just to give you kind of a brief history, because I know not everybody grew up going to church, and, and maybe it's been a while since you've been to church, so maybe you've forgotten some of this stuff or you never knew some of this stuff. So just to give you like a real brief history of the Israelites, here it is. God built this nation from descendants of a man named Abraham. Abraham and his wife, they didn't have any children. God made him a promise that I'm going to give you a son, and you are going to build, you're going to have this nation, you're going to look up into the sky, and you look at the stars, and you're going to have more descendants than even the stars in the sky. So he builds this great nation from a man named Abraham. And initially, they weren't called Israelites. Uh, They became Israelites after one of Abraham's grandsons, Jacob. He was given the name Israel. And uh, so later, they became Israelites. And Jacob had 12 sons. Later, they become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if you grew up going to church, maybe you remember the uh, story about the coat of many colors, Joseph. Joseph was one of those sons, one of those sons, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so those 12 tribes, they moved to Egypt because of what happened with Jacob, or excuse me, what happened with Joseph, and they become this great nation. So great that the Egyptians, the place where they were living, feared the Israelites, and they put them in slavery. So God takes them out of slavery and brings them into the promised land. They live in the promised land. They split it up according to the 12 tribes. Uh, they split it up according to the tribes and then into clans and then to families. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Ruth and how she was facing having to sell her land back home. And we talked about what a big deal that was. This is why. That was her inheritance from God. Her name was attached to that land that she almost had to sell. And so that's why that's such a big deal in this system, because this was their inheritance, part of the promised land that was given to them. So they, they divvy it up. And so during this time, they are ruled by judges. But the Israelites look around and they decide, you know what? This nation's got a king, and this nation's got a king, and this nation over here has a king. Why? Why don't we have a king? We should have a king, just like everybody else has a king. That's what makes a nation a nation. And God said, you have a king. It's me. You don't need a king. And they said, we want a king. And he says, no, you don't. He says, you're going to get taxed. Your men are going to be put in the military. All these things are going to happen. And they said, we want a king. And you know what God says? He says what he says a lot of times. Okay. You have the freedom to make your decision. They said, we want a king, and everything that God warned them about happened. They had their first king, Saul. He was a, it was an epic failure. Uh, David was after that, and it just kind of continued to go downhill for the most part from there. But eventually, because of their sin, this nation of Israel becomes two nations. Israel in the north, the capital was Samaria, Judah in the south. So it gets really confusing if you've ever tried to read the Old Testament and you've gotten bogged down in Kings and Chronicles. It's probably because it's hard to keep the kingdoms straight. So you got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They all used to be one, but because of their sin, because of Solomon's sin, he had a divided heart. He only served God halfway. God said, okay, I'm going to divide up the kingdom then. And it became two kingdoms. So that's kind of where we're at here. And the divided kingdom lasted for about 208 years. And during those 208 years, Israel and Judah together had a total of 39 kings. Now, hopefully you agree with me that man, in general, has a natural bend towards evil. Is there anybody that would disagree with that? Before you raise your hand, let me ask you this question. You ever had to teach your children how to do what's wrong. I mean, do we, do we really have to do that? No, we have to teach our kids constantly and remind them and sometimes give them consequences to remind them of what's right. They pick up the bad stuff, good, I mean, pretty easy on their own. 
Employers, have you ever had to teach your employees how to slack off or maybe be dishonest? No. They do that sometimes kind of naturally. My point is this, that we have a natural bend towards evil. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. And so because of that, the Israelites, and because of the kings that they had, most of them were evil. And so the morality, and more importantly, the faith of Israel diminishes with every passing generation. Evil kings continued to bring the nation down, and then the few exceptions, the few good kings, couldn't seem to elevate the the nation with them. The people kind of stayed in their sin, and and even if they did do a good job uh, getting people back to worshiping God, the next king would come along, he was evil, and they'd go right back down to where they started. And so this is kind of what the nation of Israel, God's people, has kind of come to. Now, we're going to share last week. We did kind of a weird sermon, didn't we? If you are here, it was not something we normally do. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was good. But uh, we're kind of getting back to what we normally do. We're going to be talking about a lot of Scripture today. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, open them up to 2 Kings. And I'm going to be reading a lot of Scripture today because it's one of those things that's hard for me to sum up. I think you need to hear it for yourself. So 2 Kings is where we're going to be right now. And we're going to, like I said, cover a lot of scripture, 17 verses 1 through 8. If you didn't bring your Bible, I believe it's going to be up on the screen there. Uh, also, we've got, awesome, we've got some uh, Bibles in the pew in front of you. Uh, if you're anything like me, though, I'm kind of a techie person, so I read the Bible on my phone. So if you got that, pull that out, look it up. And uh, the reason I say that is, yeah, you can see it up on the screen, but you need to be people that are in the, Bibles, in the Bible for yourselves. I hope you're not coming here every week, and this is the only time you hear about the Bible, because that means you're taking my word for it, which is a horrible idea. You need to read it for yourself and understand what it means, and making sure that I'm not leading you astray. And I assure you, I would never intentionally do that, but you need to be people of the word. And so because of that, we always encourage you to bring your Bibles. Follow along in your own Bible so you know where this stuff is at. Uh, 2 Kings 17, 1 through 8. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea was the son of Elah, and he began to reign in Samaria over Israel. He reigned, so this is the northern kingdom, we're talking about Israel here, okay, we're going to be talking about two kingdoms. He reigned for nine years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. Now Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute, so he sold out to Assyria. Hopefully you understand what's going on here. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to so king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, and he had done as he had done year after year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up, bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and then he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the harbor and the river of. Your guess is as good as mine. Gozan, we'll go with that. And the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who also feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. Okay, so that's kind of what's going on here. Now, just to kind of give you, I should have a map of this, and I don't. But Israel at this time, they inherited the promised land. They had a fight to inherit it. But at this time, because of their sin, other nations were being built up around them. And they were completely surrounded. Egypt was a major world power. I mean, we know about Egypt's history. If you go to uh, the museum in Chicago... Is that the field music? It doesn't matter what it is. Anyways, for years, they've had this great big Egyptian display just talking about 
culture in Egypt. I mean, you learned about it in a history class because Egypt was a major world power. They were in the southeast. Babylon was in the southwest. Babylon was kind of gaining strength. They weren't a world power yet, but they were getting there. And then Assyria, so you kind of have the old, that's Egypt, then the new, Babylon, the up and coming, and then you've got the people who were in power at the time, that's the Assyrians. They were the major world power, and they were at the northeast. So in other words, Israel is surrounded by great big nations, way more powerful than they are, and it's because of the choices that they made. And it's almost kind of like they're locked up. And I don't know how many uh, movies you've seen where somebody goes to prison, but it seems like the storyline's always the same. They go to prison, and of course it's difficult, and somebody tries to reach out to them and give them advice. And what's their advice? Pick a fight with the biggest, baddest guy in here, because people either think you're crazy if you lose, and if you win, then nobody's going to mess with you. But the main advice that they give to people who go to prison, and apparently this is pretty true, is you need to join a gang. I have a friend, unfortunately, that uh, went to prison for his whole life, and he converted to Islam uh, just so he could protect himself in prison. That's what the king, Hoshea, does here. He joins up with a gang, thinking that he can keep himself out of trouble. Not only that, but he joins two gangs. Rather than turning to God, I mean, God had brought them out of Egypt, brought them into the promised land, did all this crazy stuff to get them there, and yet, instead of turning to God at a time of need, he makes an alliance first with Assyria, and then he makes an alliance with Egypt. But the problem is, Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, heard that he made a deal with Egypt as well, one of his main competitors. And so because of that, he didn't hold up to his end of the bargain, and he attacked Israel. It says that it lasted three years, a siege against Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel. Now, when we read things on the, in the Bible, sometimes it doesn't really jump out at us. We're reading so many words that we don't really think about what it must have been like. But can you imagine a three-year siege of your capital city? And we're not talking about like modern warfare, which is bad enough. We're talking about ancient warfare. The Assyrians had a especially brutal reputation. Now, I'm going to share some things that are like R-rated, okay? And I think the reason is this isn't for shock value, but just so that we can understand what these people were seeing on a daily basis. So put the earmuffs on the kids if you need to. But, I mean, they, they were known for decapitating people, and they would stack their heads up in big piles. They uh, would impale people with spears and then display the bodies up on long poles so everybody could see. They were known for skinning people while they were still alive. Another thing they were famous for is putting steel hooks in their noses and leading them out of their own country uh, like livestock. Some of them missing limbs because of the violence that they had already endured. That is what ha is happening to God's people. These are the kind of people that they're up against. But what's almost even worse is uh, they left some of the Jews behind in their home country. And you say, well, what's bad about that? Well, Assyria, they were pretty smart in what they did. Their goal was to sort of weed out the blood of their enemies, if that makes sense. And so they brought in the majority of the people living in Samaria. They repopulated with Assyrians. So in other words, you had like one-third Jewish people, two-thirds Assyrian people. And so they began to intermarry. And uh, so they begin to mix blood and religion. As a matter of fact, if you fast forward to the New Testament, you remember like the story of, uh, there's a story about the Good Samaritan. Maybe you've heard that story. And it was so unbelievable because this Samaritan had mercy on this Jewish man, which was unheard of because the Samaritans and Jews hated each other. Do you want to know why the Samaritans and Jews hated one another? It's because of this. The Samaritans were these people. 
the Assyrians and the Jews that intermarried and had children and kind of had this mixed faith, they were from Samaria. They became Samaritans. So does that make sense why the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other so much? They were kind of a product of their arch enemies. That's why they didn't like each other. Okay, I really went off on a tangent there. Where did I go? Okay, right here. All right, so... What's interesting about this whole thing is because God called his people, like from the very beginning, he's like, you know, I'm setting you apart. You are going to be holy. You are going to be different than anybody else. And yet they kept choosing to be like everybody else. And almost in a, it's almost ironic here because really what happens is they literally become just like everyone else, intermarrying with them, worshiping their gods. And so now Israel is defeated. So Assyria, this is several years later, a different king, began to set their sights on the southern kingdom, which was Judah. So we're going to read about that, 2 Kings 17, 13 through 20. 2 Kings chapter 17, 13 through 20. I uh, usually preach from the tablet, and it's not working right now, and I was literally pushing the button on my paper thinking that it was going to turn for me. <laughs> Woo! Okay. Anyways, verse 13. The Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from evil, your evil ways. Keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. They followed nations and that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped in the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord is very angry with Israel, removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of, it, of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord. So this is talking about the southern kingdom. Only one tribe left. They were defeated. Okay, So Judah also did not keep the commands of the Lord. They walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he cast them out of his sight. So the reason why I want to read all this scripture today is because you know, I can try to sum it up as best I can, but I think it's important for you to hear the word of the Lord for, for yourself, to see the, the depths that God's people had sank into. They didn't believe in God, it says here. It says they worshipped idols, they followed other nations. I can't remember if it was in this passage or another one, but it says that they even burned their sons and daughters on altars to false gods, to gods that didn't, didn't exist. So do you understand the depth of the depravity of God's people? So Israel and Judah, they kind of give us, though, two very distinct pictures from one another. Israel, what did the king of Israel do? He allied himself, he allied himself, excuse me, with uh, another king, Hoshea. He allied himself with, with himself with other kings. Can't talk today. Uh, but then Judah, even though it says here they had been guilty of sin in the past and still were, at this time they actually had a good king. And so they give us two pictures because Judah didn't do what Israel had done. And we read about it in 2 Kings 18, and I'm going to skip around here. I'm going to start in verse uh, 8. Uh, verse 1 and skip to 3 and then 4, 5, 6, and 7. So I'll skip here a little bit. But 2 Kings 18, starting with verse 1. 
In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the king of Judah, began to reign. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So this is talking about Hezekiah now. Two kingdoms. You understand this is two kingdoms, okay? So we had the evil king, Hoshea, in one. Hezekiah is in the southern kingdom. So they start reigning at the same time. He actually did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to David, what is David, David, hmm, David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, all the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He's trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not, de- he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord was with him wherever he went. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria. It would not serve him. So do you understand why I'm saying they gave us two distinct pictures? Even though both uh, nations had done incredible evil towards God, one king turns to other nations. One king, it says, would not bow to Assyria. It would only turn to God. So Sennacherib was now the king of Assyria. And Sennacherib was uh, very cunning. And he didn't just wage physical warfare, but he waged psychological warfare. And we can, you can read about it in Kings for yourself. But he sent out three officials to Hezekiah. But you know what these officials didn't do? They didn't go to other officials to talk about this. That's normally what you do when you're trying to make a deal with somebody is to go to the officials. That's not what they did. When he sent these three, they would go into public places. And they spoke Hebrew so that everybody could understand And they would say, this is what we're going to do to you. They were instilling fear in all the people so that they would turn to them and just give up. But Hezekiah wasn't about to do that. Hezekiah didn't turn to any king. He only turned to the king of kings. We read about it in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 14 through 19. 2 Kings 19, 14 through 19. Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. This is awesome what he does here. The first thing he does, he gets a a letter from the king of Assyria saying, you think your God's going to save you? You're dead. And he gets this letter. And you know what his first thought is? He goes up, spreads the letter out, and he begins to pray just like that. That's his first instinct. Spreads it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria laid waste to the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, alone are God. Now I know I'm doing a lot of reading, and I'm not a particularly good reader, but I think you need to hear this for yourself. That this is a man's desperate plea before God. These are his words, his prayer. So Hezekiah, he's scared out of his mind. He is frightful, but he still trusts God. He trusts that God is going to take care of him. And God let him know that he would. And he did it through a man named Isaiah. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Isaiah, but he was a prophet. And we read about his calling in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 Uh, verses 8 through 13. This is the calling of Isaiah. 
And this is Isaiah speaking here. It says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then he said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to your people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull and the ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? He said, until cities lay waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Needless to say, Isaiah did not get invited to a lot of parties. He was not a, uh, he didn't have, people didn't want to be around him. He didn't have a good message. He wasn't going to say the things that they wanted to hear. He would have been a real downer because God's message for his people was not a positive one. It says that he had an unpopular message. And not only that, but God tells him right from the get-go, just so you know, people aren't going to listen to you anyways. How would you like to have that job? And then he talks about a stump. And later, he doesn't say it here, but later in Isaiah, he calls it the stump of Jesse. Now, you might say, well, what is the stump of Jesse? Jesse was the father of David. David was the greatest king that the Israelites ever had. And so when he talks about the stump of Jesse, he's talking about the family of of Jesse, the family of David, these kings. And it says that now, you know, once was this big, strong, beautiful tree. This country was once a big, strong, beautiful tree, but now it's a stump. There's nothing left. It's only a reminder of what once was. What a waste. Here God had built this big nation, but now it was no more. And really it kind of sounds like the end. And can we really blame God, especially for those of you who have been here through this whole series or maybe you know the word of God on your own? We can't blame God, do we? He warned them like flat out over and over, told them exactly what to do, told them exactly what was going to happen if they didn't do it. And he did it over and over and over again. But it just seems hopeless. And so Isaiah asked him, he says, well, how long do I have to proclaim this message? And you know what God says? Until all the cities are destroyed. Until everything's gone. Now, I don't know about you guys, but uh, you ever do any, like, fall trimming, fall pruning? You know, things begin to die. And so I always go out with my hedge trimmers and cut all the dead stuff off. And there's still some, you know, green stuff, some living stuff. But I cut it all off together because I know it's not going to stay green for long. And it looks like absolute destruction and desolation, doesn't it? Until the next year rolls around and, of course, they come up again. And that's kind of the image that's given here. When you cut that stuff away, you're cutting away what's dead and you even cut with it some stuff that's alive. But the next year, new things begin to sprout up. Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Usually when we think of a stump, we think of something that's dead, something that won't produce anymore. But out of this stump, it says, there's a little tender shoot from the stump of Jesse. He says more about it in uh, verses 1 through 3. There shall come forth a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots that shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Have you ever tried to renovate something? Is it ever fun? (laughs) Is it ever easy? Is it ever what you expect? No. It's easier just to build something new, right? Because when you're renovating something, you have to tear out, you have to destroy. 
And then in addition to that, then build new. And it's kind of hard. It's hard work and it's painful. And Isaiah here, he's talking about destruction, the judgment and destruction. But understand, he's not, that's not where it ends. He's not just talking about destruction and that's the end and God moves on and tries it with somebody else. No, he begins to talk about not just destruction but restoration. He talks about a Messiah. And I wish I could, I don't have the time, I don't want to bore you with all these, but I mean there's a list of them and a reference for each one of these. But it says that the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin, chapter 7 and 14. It says that he's going to minister in Galilee in Isaiah 9, 12. He will be righteous in Isaiah 32, 1. Those are all the references I have. I won't share the references for the rest of these, but these all have references from Isaiah. It says that he'll be just and kind. It says there won't be any more war. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Death would be destroyed. But it also says something that didn't sit real well with him. He would suffer and die with sinners. Now you need to understand that this was written 700 years before Jesus was born. But everything written here points to him. He was from the house of David. He was born of a virgin. He died with sinners. See, this is God's plan to restore not just the Israelites, but all people. It's Jesus. So his plan isn't just destruction and doom and gloom, but he's bringing something good out of destruction, something better than there ever has been before. God didn't just give up on his people, but he had this plan to restore them. So back to our original question that we started with today. Can one man make a difference? Well, Hezekiah did, didn't he? He stood up to the king of Assyria. And I didn't share this, and I really should have, but what happened after Hezekiah prayed? Do you know what happened? The army of the Assyrians overnight like that died. I, can't, I want to say it was like 180,000 men died. No battle was fought. Not a sword was drawn. God took care of it because Hezekiah turned to the Lord. So Hezekiah, he stood up. And good came out of it. He made a difference. Isaiah made a difference. He, he spoke up. God says, who's going to go? Who's going to proclaim this really unpopular message to people who already don't listen? And what does he say? I'll do it. He says, here am I. Send me. Hezekiah stood up. Isaiah spoke up. So one man can make a difference, but the trouble with men is they die. And Hezekiah died. And the king after him was just about as evil as they come. And so eventually Judah was destroyed all the same. But Isaiah and Hezekiah, they made a difference in the right way. They looked to God. They didn't look to their own strength or their own agenda. They stood up and they spoke up in the power of God. Hoshea, he turned to some of the world's strongest superpowers, and it wasn't enough to save him. But it only bought some time. Because Hezekiah was just a man. He didn't have the power to save. Isaiah didn't have the power to save. But Isaiah points to one man who made all the difference. His name's Jesus. A man who can do things that Isaiah couldn't do, that no king, David, didn't matter who, no king could do but Jesus. So sometimes I think that we feel pretty small, you know, especially when it comes to politics, you know, just one vote, you know, things kind of seem out of our control. Maybe you feel small because you've got big problems going on in your own life or, or in your world, so to speak, and it's out of your control. Maybe you feel small just because you feel unnoticed or unappreciated or, or unqualified for a task that you've been given. 
Sometimes it's we're trying to follow God, but we feel small because we just can't seem to make a difference in the lives of the people around us. And so maybe you wonder, can I really make a difference? And I think we should learn from Isaiah and Hezekiah that we need to stand up, that we need to speak up. We need to do the things that God has called us to do. But we also need to understand that even if it doesn't like go great at the time, even, though, even if you're doing what God calls you to do and it doesn't seem to be working out, it doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. Sometimes God, God simply just calls us to do hard stuff. It, he doesn't promise that it's always going to be successful. Just like Isaiah, he told him the exact opposite. He told him right up front, hey, this isn't going to go well, but I want you to do it anyway because it's part of my plan. And the same is true for you. That God may be calling you to do something that's really hard, something that you don't want to do. It doesn't mean that it's not part of God's plan. Maybe God's plan for you is something that's difficult, but he has a bigger plan for eternity. But also, if we want to make a difference in the world, we have to turn to the one who saves. Hezekiah, Isaiah, they didn't turn to their own strength. They turned to God. So when you feel like you can't make a difference, remember one man made all the difference. His name is Jesus. You need to follow him. You need to turn over to him. Otherwise, you know, we, we learn it from uh, Hoshea. He turns to the greatest superpower there was, two of them. But it didn't work out for him, did it? And sometimes we turn to everything else but God. In times of trouble, in times that we feel small or, or insignificant, we turn to our friends to kind of puff us up, or maybe a spouse, or, or, or we turn to material things. Or, you know, I, don't know, I don't know who you turn to or what you turn to, but sometimes God is the last thing that we turn to in times of trouble. We need to learn from Hezekiah when he sprawls that letter out before God and says, God, what am I going to do with this? He says, God, I trust you, and I know you're going to save me, and he did. It doesn't always happen that way, but it did for Hezekiah. But regardless of what happened, he trusted in the will of God. That should be a good example for us, that when you have things that are going on in your life that seem out of your control, that the first instinct that you have is to lay it before the Lord and say, God, I sure can't do this, but I know you've got a plan. One man made all the difference. His name is Jesus. But the first thing we need to do is we need to turn to him. But when we do that, we need to understand that sin and death are already defeated. It's already, it just has to come to fruition. That's a plan that's kind of unveiling as we go. But we know how the story ends. And so I think we as Christians today, sometimes in our attitudes, uh, we almost act like we're coming from a place of defeat. But man, as Christians, if you believe what the Bible says, that Jesus has defeated sin and death, you fight from a place of, of victory. You know how the battle ends already. Now, I'm not talking about your specific battle. I'm talking about the war. We know how the war ends. We win. People on God's side wins. So I guess the question for you is, what side are you on? Are you on the side of people like Hoshea who trusted in other people? Are you going to be like Hezekiah, Isaiah, people that turn to the Lord, even when it didn't make sense, even when it seemed impossible? My hope is that you turn to the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day you've given us today. We thank you for men like Isaiah and Hezekiah, good examples for us of what we should do. Sometimes, God, it's so easy because we have these things in our lives that, that are just right in front of us to, to turn to people or to turn to physical things. But, Lord, we know that that will, that will never work out, not in the long term, that the things in this life will never pass beyond this earth. So, Lord, help us to turn to eternal things. Help us to turn to you and your kingdom 
and your plan for us, what you have in mind for us. I pray, Lord, that there's anybody in here that needs to humble themselves, uh, that they will do that, that they will turn to you and simply say, you know what, I've tried it my way, it's not working out, and God, I want to follow you. We know, Lord, that's where it starts, a simple decision to follow you, to believe in you, to believe in your son, and to trust in him. It's your name I pray, amen. Let's stay together. Today we're going to sing a, a song of invitation. And, and uh, we say song of invitation, and I always try to kind of define why we call it that. We've been calling it a song of invitation for years. And uh, sometimes it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other, but we forget that that actually means something, that we are inviting you. And the invitation for you is to, to come to Jesus, to give your life to him. And if you've never done that, I want you to understand that it's not complicated. It's not easy, but it's very simple. And that's simply making the decision, God, I'm going to try it your way. You don't have to have all the answers. It's just taking that first step towards him. If that's a step you need to take today, uh, I'd encourage you to do that. But I also want to encourage you, maybe you've made that decision, but you've turned, kind of like uh, uh, Israel and, and, and Judah, you've turned from God. Then you need to turn back to God. That's my invitation to you to take a step towards him and not continue to take steps away from him, but to turn, to repent, to come back to him. One of the things that we do, it's kind of intimidating. You know, I know that the old way of doing it is to come down front before everybody, and it doesn't seem like that's easy for people to do anymore. And so we've got some elders uh, that stand in the back of the room. They're kind of in the, the three corners here. And uh, if you've got something on your heart that's kind of tugging on you and you need to talk or pray with somebody about it, uh, seek one of those guys out or seek somebody out in here that, you, that knows something about it. And uh, I just want to invite you into a relationship with him, whether that's for the first time or just a closer relationship with him. Maybe you just got something going on in your life that's really difficult and you don't know what the way out is. They love to just pray with you. So think about those things as we uh, sing this song of invitation. <laughs>